You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is season four, episode 10. One of the more unique artists I've come across in recent times is someone whose work doesn't involve a paintbrush or a musical instrument, but rather mechanical objects and the restoration of time. Nico Cox is an antiquarian horologist. And if you're like me, I'm sure many of you may have little idea of what that means. Basically, an antiquarian horologist is a watchmaker who specializes in the restoration of antique automata and mechanical musical objects. I came across Nico's work from a feature on her in CNN's Great Big Story, and I was immediately drawn to this strange and obscure art form of resurrecting relics of the past and bringing broken things back to life again. Earlier this year, I was traveling to Seattle, Washington, and I reached out to Nico to ask if she'd be interested in joining me on the podcast for a conversation about her art and the philosophy behind her work. She agreed, and so I made my way to her tiny second floor workshop tucked away in South Seattle. I'm excited to share a conversation with you today on antiquarian horology and the keeping of time. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for video links to Nico's work, as well as links to join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective and to our featured musical artist, Unwed Sailor. This is my conversation with Nico Cox. Well, Nico, thank you so much for being on Makers and Mystics. I'm really excited to talk to you and get to know you a bit. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, we're sitting in your workshop in downtown Seattle, right? Or in one of the, wherever we are, where are we? <laughs> we're kind of in South Seattle, a little bit, yeah. yeah, a little bit removed from downtown. Yeah, so we're sitting in your workshop in South Seattle, surrounded by tons of old books and clocks and music boxes and all kinds of artifacts. It's like when I walked in, I felt like I walked into another dimension, which was so inspiring. I love I love your workspace here. I think I said it just has a particular feeling about it that almost without sounding cheesy, it exudes like the creative space. Thank you. Yeah, um, I kind of wanted to build a, a space where it really brought, you know, when I walked in, it was inspiring for me to understand my own journey and mm-hmm. what I was building here. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've surrounded myself with all of my favorite things, which I guess it's mostly old dusty stuff. Yeah, I try to obviously mitigate dust because that's not good for mechanisms. <laughs> um, but yeah, all of, everything is really, you know, 100 years old or so. Well, tell me some about what you do, because I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are not familiar with what an antiquarian horologist is. So maybe let's start there 
and uh, tell us some about what that is. Well, um, an antiquarian horologist, really what I am is I started out as a a jeweler and then I trained as a watchmaker and then as a clockmaker. But my interest and fascination has always been with antique mechanisms. And so an antiquarian horologist is somebody who works on antique mechanical objects that are related to the horological field. So basically um, something that utilizes a watch or a clock mechanism either to tell time or to create some other um, experience for the person that's experiencing the object. So it could be that it plays music. It could be that it um, produces a mechanical bird that sings a song for you. Uh, It could be that you're watching a flower bloom from a pot and spin in different directions and glitters as it's doing so because it's covered in gems. Or um, There there are many different things that horology was applied to outside of watches and clocks. So antiquarian horologist is kind of a general term for um, all of those objects. How did you find your way to this? I mean, it's such a unique field of work. It's such a unique art form. How did you find your way to this? Well, it was not um, quite a linear path. It was circuitous, I guess I would say. Yeah. Um, and that's really in, in a matter of perspective, perhaps, because from my own perspective, uh, it really does seem quite linear. It makes sense to me when I was a child. I collected musical boxes and um, small mechanical objects, compasses, old springs, mirrors, um, definitely watches and things like that, magnets. And I had a real interest in how those things worked. And as I got older, uh, that interest never waned. But I didn't know that there was really a path to working with those things. You know, I didn't grow up um, where there was access to a clockmaker shop or a watchmaker shop, for example. So uh, I worked as a as a jeweler. I actually started out learning jewelry from um, when I worked at the carnival. <laughs> so as a kid, my my real first paid job was selling toys and demoing toys for a couple that um, would visit different fairgrounds throughout the year. And whenever they would come to Texas, I would uh, see them and work for them for two weeks. And then when they stopped coming back, I started working for a jeweler that was there. And from there, I ended up getting a job at a local bead and jewelry store and kind of went from there and did some repairs and learned more, took some classes. And in university, I studied metaphysics and epistemology, which is a branch of philosophy that studies uh, really the theory, theory of knowledge and possibility. And in studying that, I learned about the age of philosophy when great thinkers of that time were, and this was, I think, post-Renaissance, really, when people were looking at philosophical problems with a lot of the technological advancements that were available at that time. And this included mechanical systems that allowed people to create objects that were able to simulate acts of living things. And I found that really fascinating. So I decided um, from a philosophical standpoint, I really wanted to look at the questions that they were looking at that time in a more hands-on approach. So I applied to watchmaking school and I went on to England to do clockmaking and then specialized in automata. I got my master's in the conservation of clocks and related dynamic objects. Um, so I'm technically a certified museum conservator of horological antiquities. And um, that's really... That's how I got into wow. it. It's a really long <laughs> explanation. <laughs> oh, wow. That's that's amazing. Help me, though, explain what automata is. Basically, an automaton is a, is a machine that can simulate life, right? It is basically a facsimile of a living thing. That is the easiest way to put it, a mechanical object that is a facsimile of a living thing. So, for example, you would have an, an automaton that 
pretended to play an instrument. So it would be a mechanical figure that had an automatic player in the bass or somewhere else mm -hmm. hidden, and it would be playing music, and you'd have it maybe strumming a guitar or playing, you know, pretending to play a flute or something. Well, in the um, 18th century, they actually were able to create automaton that were able to play the flute or play an instrument, play the piano. So these objects were actually able to perform these acts that were previously only capable by humans, mm -hmm. which is really quite fascinating, I yeah. think. Um, and the fact that we actually you know, wanted to, to do that, there was this momentum and drive and this interest in creating these objects, mm -hmm. um, I think is really quite quite fascinating. Wow. So this is probably a crude and hopefully not an offensive comparison, but the movie Hugo is what comes to mind when I think of an automaton. Is that anywhere in the neighborhood? Oh, that is. Yeah, that's absolutely a, a film about an automaton. Yeah. yeah um, that's a very sophisticated automaton. It was based on uh, the piece that's at the Franklin Institute, uh, which is a, a writing uh, and drafting. It was a drawer as well, I believe. So um, that particular automaton was actually more advanced and more complicated than the Jacques Hedro's automaton that I think most people, when they, if they know much about automata, they might know about these three figures that were created by Jacques Hedro's. And uh, there's a, a draftsman, uh, a, a writer, and the, uh, the woman that plays the piano. But technically, the, the writer is considered to be the ancestor to the first programmable computer because all of the characters uh, that were the mechanical letters could be rearranged and, and set in any particular order. So you could have the writer write any word or any sentence. Wow. Up to 40 characters, I think. So is this like the great grandfather to artificial intelligence maybe or that's how i like to think of it yeah, yeah. i mean <laughs> certainly people have differing opinions about what artificial intelligence is but um these were our first attempts at creating those types of, of objects of those types of machines i mean obviously it's it's a crude example of that but certainly yes i would say that's where the root of it is people were trying to create using their the best of their cognitive and creative capacities to create artificial life One of the things that fascinates me about the work that you're doing is that there's a res restoration in the process. You know, what you're doing is you're bringing things back to life that had lost their ability to function. And so it just has a real metaphysical kind of aspect to it or a, a real spiritual nature to it. I, I love, you know, when I first saw your work I, and just heard about how you're taking these old things and then you're bringing them back to life again. It really inspired me. And I wonder for you, with your background in philosophy, do you have more of a connection between the work that you do and then kind of a metaphysical or spiritual aspect to it? Yeah, I mean, I would say certainly my, my philosophical um, viewpoint and background lends to my philosophy that surrounds mm -hmm. my work. Yeah. Uh, I know why these things were made. I know the intention behind them because I know the context in which they were created. And so for me, doing this work and kind of bringing these pieces back, I, I'm restoring the message of that, that creator from yeah. hundreds of years ago. That wow. person wanted to say something very specific with these objects. And, you know, for me, it's you know, over 100 years later, and I'm very privileged, I think, to be sitting there with this artifact that carries so much weight and intention from 
those previous years. And all and it's not just I suppose the intention but also the intention within the craft. Mm-hmm. So to actually have the skills to make these objects mm-hmm. took someone a lifetime to achieve. You know, they were creating these objects with very few resources. I mean, if you look around today, we have everything we could possibly need to do almost anything we could ever want. Yet so many people I think are are limited by that because there are obviously endless possibilities and there's also not the drive, I think. I think you can find, uh, a lot of people can find satisfaction from doing very little work, you know, for a really great payoff. But these people put in a tremendous amount of work and really the payoff was that tangible object at the end of it. And so the preservation of not just the objects, but those skills and the story really motivates me. And I find a lot of meaning and intention in that. And to me, I I guess that's a way of being connected to something that's much greater than just this world that I live in, much greater than myself. Well, what are some of the aspects of the creative process that most stand out to you in this work? You mentioned being connected to the stories that these previous creators were trying to tell through what they made. Like, Tell me more about some of the creative process and some of the different aspects of creativity that you experience in working with this. Well, um, I suppose it's, you know, innovative problem solving. So a lot of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. I come across something that, you know, maybe I've worked on three or four of the same object by the same maker before, but I'm encountering new problems that I've never seen before. And it's because each one of these was handmade, even though they were made in a series. Um, And technically, you know, you might think that that was mass production in a sense, but uh, each one carries the hands of the craftsmen that made it. So those people... You know, they had their good and their bad days, mm-hmm. just like we do. <laughs> and so maybe they, maybe they, that one day, they just weren't at their best, but they still had to get this thing made. So it could be that this, this particular piece has this inherent flaw or this problem, which in a mechanical system, you know, when you get it working and it's new and that flaw may not really mean that much at that time, but a hundred years later when everything's worn and it's been used over and over again, that flaw maybe has created some other serious problems mm. and each one is kind of a chain reaction. Right. So you have to really follow those problems down the line and figure out where's the root problem. Yeah. And it could be that somebody else or maybe five other people have been in there thinking, oh, I know I found the problem, but actually the problem was three other places down and they corrected one thing along the line and got it working for a while, mm-hmm. but oh goodness, that problem is still there. And now that thing that they sort of fixed is a problem too. Wow. So yeah. you end up yeah. having to keep going through and and I guess, yeah, that's it's just a lot of like innovative problem solving. So you're also trying to figure out, okay, well, what is really essential to the history of this piece? Um, you know, do you just remake these things? Because certainly if you just made a new part, it would fix it. But at the same time, these are the original components that were made, you know, in 1820. And here we are in 2018, so that's almost 200 years. So I don't want to throw away something 200 years old, even if it's got these issues. If I can somehow, you know, mitigate those issues and um, create a solution, you know, and, and work with that original component, that's 
definitely what I would prefer to do. As long as it's not going to damage the object over time or create risk for the object that is going to be problematic for someone else later. So certainly I think that is a huge part of the creative process. I know maybe that doesn't sound like creativity because it's very mechanical and it's very technical, but it's it's a lot of critical thinking and in critical thinking you, you have to be creative about your problem solving. You can't just go to the same you know 10 solutions because there's always three ways to do something. One of the things that I read that you said is you you talked about how these ancient timepieces and these ancient music boxes show us what the future looked like to people of long ago. Can you elaborate on that idea? I think, you know, these were the top scientists of the time, really. You know, these were the people that were at the forefront of innovation. And what's fascinating to me about um, horology is how it was utilized at, you know, all of the great developments in technology that we have. I mean, we have horology to thank for uh, calculating longitude at sea. That was the solution made by a clockmaker. You know, we have... um, and I think I talk about this a lot, but basically our moon landing was successful because of a mechanical timer that was brought as a backup for the electronic timer, which actually failed. So mm. it was a small, rather simple mechanical timer that worked in, I think, 60 second and six minute intervals. Yeah. And had you know we not had that, mm-hmm. who knows? Um, there's also, uh, you know, horology to thank for the very first, or what, what I believe were possibly the first first recordings of music. Mm. So we had a mechanical clockmaker. Um, well, that one's four minutes slow. <laughs> 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 Gonna have to regulate that. Um, So we had a a mechanical clockmaker, Charles Clay, who was really kind of an innovative thinker of the time because he was creating these collaborative works between different artisans. He was actually taking, you know, the very best uh, goldsmith or case maker and the best crystal engraver, rock crystal carver, and the best painters and the best composers to create these very elaborate pieces that were these collaborations between all of these artisans. And he actually worked with um, George Friedrich Handel to compose Ah. tunes for his clocks. So we know that Handel created at least 10 tunes specifically for Charles Clay's musical clocks. And what he was able to, to do at this time was basically, you know, when you play the piano, you have the limitations of what your hands are able to do. You know, even the best performers can't play with three hands, so you can't include all these, you know, extras, right? Well, with a mechanical organ, you're able to kind of do anything that you want. There's no limitation that can't be overcome with a, with this mechanical object, you know, as far as how many octaves or what the tempo or different things like that. So, um, basically, we believe it's possible that Handel could have actually played a role in pinning the musical barrel so that each note within that barrel was placed and how that note was um, basically how the note resonated or or how it was plucked or how it was played was all dictated by Handel. So the Mm. attack of the note, the decay of the note, um, the way that basically all of it came together, the arrangement, uh, it could have been done by a skilled 
pen, you know, person that penned barrels. But given that this was really the first opportunity for someone, a composer, to do that, I would say it's likely that Handel probably had a hand in making sure that that recording, you know, so to say, was reflective of his work and his intention. Well, who are some of your creative inspirations? Who are some of the, the people who have inspired you in the work that you're doing? Oh, well, uh, I suppose the craftsmen of, of the previous centuries that I look up to the most uh, would be Jacob Frizzard, who was a singing bird maker. And he really was responsible for some of the most incredible innovations in the mechanical singing bird systems. Unfortunately, I, I think he died penniless abroad trying to sell his work, which is really quite, quite tragic. But, you know, today, when I think of Frizzard, I think of, you know, the most accomplished mechanical engineer and artist of that period that was working within that field. Yeah. Well, I read about, because you were talking about the singing birds, and I read about one particular one that you restored, which was the Scarlet Tanager singing bird. Yeah. Can you tell me about that restoration or, or just about what that is and, and that project that you did? Yeah, so the Scarlet Tanager is a, it's a basically a very brightly colored migratory bird. Um, I believe it's a North American bird, but it's uh, it's all red and it has uh, some black, black wings, I think, and a little black tail. But uh, this particular bird was actually a taxidermied scarlet tanager that had been turned into a singing bird automaton. So it basically was a, a, a the shell of this original scarlet tanager bird that was then basically filled with, you know, gears and mechanism to reactivate, reanimate it once mm. it was dead. And it sat on top of a, um, a little gold perch in a cage. And the base for, for activating this, or the mechanism for activating the bird was inside the case. So the bellows, which acted as the lungs of this bird, um, basically were the, were the breath of the bird. And the whistle was a slide whistle, so it created the pitch and the trill and the voice of the bird. And so restoring this this piece, it was actually in, in kind of rough shape, you know, it had, had been neglected, I think, for some time in the sense that it was very dusty and all the feathers were kind of pulled out, mm-hmm. it was missing its tail. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to really restore a bit of the brilliance that had once been, been this bird, you know, or a part of this bird to it. So I created a little feather toupee for his tail, so I was able to <laughs> reinsert some feathers there, um, you know, spiff him up a little bit. But I think just bringing this bird back to life was a really interesting experience because that was my first time working with a taxidermied mm. bird. So it really kind of hit home what what was happening, you know, way, the way that people were kind of looking at these, these creatures, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to keep something alive long past all of its counterparts were dead, mm-hmm. you know, long past the person that that made it would would be alive that bird would continue living and singing for you know hundreds of years really so i think it's just a an interesting perspective on mortality and you know how fleeting life is really you know our our own vulnerabilities about our our fleeting existence i think are really represented within that type of object
historically there's this strange relationship between magic and horology. And I'm not sure if that means like magic in the sense of Houdini or magic in the sense of Aleister Crowley. And to me, those are two different, completely two different things. So I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Well, sure. So uh, magic actually has a very long tradition of horology. Uh, apparently, um, there were a few magicians that actually used horology within their magic shows uh, for you know 19th century um, and possibly even earlier than that. But uh, Jean Eugène Robert Houdin, who Houdini actually took his name from, is really kind of the I would say the the most notable figure within this realm of mechanical horology that was used in magic, and he is known as actually the the father of modern magic. He was a clockmaker. I believe he was a clockmaker son. He was born in 1805 in um, France. I believe. Blois, if I'm saying that right, B-L-O-I-S-E, <laughs> probably saying that wrong. But um, he was he was born in France and was the son of a, of a horologist, a watcher clockmaker, and had actually planned to go into horology after graduating law school. And I believe the story is he was headed back home and went into a bookshop and bought two volumes on what he thought was clockmaking, but actually left by mistake with two volumes on magic. So that was the start of his great story, his great journey. And he went home and, and married the daughter of a famous clockmaker in Paris and worked, I believe, with this family. And in this time, you know, the skills he had as a horologist began to really blossom and he started also practicing magic. And then he started realizing that he could use horology within his shows to create some incredible tricks that had never been attempted before. So he was not only using horology within his magic shows, but he also, um, I think, was the creator of the first mystery clock. So these are clocks where you know the hands move, and you're not really sure. Well, how is it telling us the time? Because it's all it's all glass. You see through it. So he was creating these really beautiful mystery clocks, and then also creating these mechanical illusions. One of the most famous was the mechanical orange tree, which was this beautiful tree that would blossom and it would actually bloom. At, with real fruit, with real oranges, and he would cut this, these oranges up and pass them through the audience to prove that they were real. And in the end, the top orange would open and out would come a handkerchief that was carried by two butterflies, and the handkerchief would have tied to it some object from the audience that had been previously vanished during his performance. So this could be a ring or a watch or something. And this was such a famous trick, he had performed it around Europe, and it actually inspired Peter Carl Fabergé, who was the goldsmith to the Tsar, that created all of those beautiful Easter eggs I think most people associate with Fabergé. And one of the Easter eggs he created was the bay tree egg, which is also the orange tree. And it was a mechanical orange tree that instead of having the butterflies, it actually had a singing bird that popped out at the top. So it was kind of a homage not just to Robert Houdin, but also Jacques Edros, or some of the earliest makers of singing birds. So, do you have plans to take your horology on the road in a magic performance in theaters? When can we get our tickets? Oh gosh, well, you're talking about one of my life dreams there. <laughs> I mean, I love magic. Yeah. In fact, it's really one of my absolute favorite things. Yeah. I think, you know, um, I believe, I can't remember who said this. It might have been Houdini, but a magician, a famous magician had said, you know, if he could just, basically the one thing he wanted before he died was to be fooled. 
uh, because there's nothing like that's so good <laughs> yeah I mean there's yeah. something so wonderful yeah. about the naivety mm. of magic yeah and letting yourself believe something yeah. that's so spectacular well see for me that plays right into the creative process and right into art and for me I love fairy tales I'm a huge fan of fairy tales and it's just the childhood suspension of belief you know, to allow yourself to experience something magical. I think that's one of the intrinsic things about automata. You know, when somebody sees an automaton perform and maybe it's the first time they've seen a singing, seen a singing bird box and you know, they could be standing there with someone they've never met or somebody who's completely different, you know, opposite sides of the world. Yeah. They both have the same experience. Yeah. It's this incredible sensation of, of curiosity and joy and, you know, how in the world is that happening? It's, it's, it really is magic to see a singing bird pop out of a box, sing a song for you, and then disappear. And there's no electricity. I mean, it's, it's none of the things that you would normally associate with that kind of, you know, novelty. Um, it's all self-contained. So everything is right there. We each carry a lineage. I mean, we're all human beings. We have a shared experience. We have a shared existence. There's nothing more fundamental than those essential, uh, our essential phenomenology and our connection, our tangible connection to this, this world. And how we interpret the information and how we really process that and it's obviously different from person to person you know certainly some people take that and they create beautiful art some people take that and they create innovative scientific you know technologies or maybe they're they're solving problems they're working on hunger they're working on you know recycling or some of these big challenges we're facing but it's it's all about our our existence here and when we look back horology has been around since the very beginning of us, because we um, as creatures and our great ancestors, I mean, going way, way, way back, we were looking at the stars. Yeah. We were looking at the seasons. We were, you know, governing our days by that beautiful, bright light in the sky. And so we have always been focused on time and how that affects us and what that really means and our different interpretations of that. So taking very simple. Um, objects and creating like a gnomon to see where you know where that shadow falls so we know where in the day we are um, creating mechanical clocks to help govern our days and so there's this really long lineage and it it's so essential to our experience and I just think so often we're always thinking about the future we're, we're looking at everything outside instead of really looking inward and at our different adaptations or our different um, approaches to this thing that we experience every day. Well, Nika, thank you so much for inviting me to your workshop and letting me have this time with you for the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. You can visit patreon.com slash makersandmystics for an additional interview with Nico on the church's bizarre use of automata and a mechanical Christ during the Middle Ages. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.